I'm Kiri. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. And we find book lovers everywhere. And talking about books is one of our favorite things to do, besides what, Amy? Eating the best ripe summer tomatoes that you buy at the farmer's market with just a little bit of salt sprinkled on, unless you're Carrie and you don't like tomatoes. Okay, let me qualify this. I don't like tomatoes that you just bite into like an apple, but small tomatoes in salad are okay. (laughs) We've had long discussions about this, people. We have. (laughs) And we are totally biased, but we think reading people are the coolest people. So this week, we talk with Heather Lennon, the sales and marketing director at Arctis Books, which is a new publisher of books and translation for middle grade and young adult audiences. I first encountered Arctis Books when I saw an Instagram post about a middle grade book called Memento Monstrum, originally published in German, that will be in U.S. bookstores in October. And I fell in love with that book, as you know, Carrie, which I talked about in our episode with Caroline Stein from Blue Marble Books in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. I liked the book so much, I messaged Heather and invited her to be on the show to talk about Arctis specifically and books in translation in general. Heather has been in publishing for 20 years with Random House, North-South Books, and is now helping Arctis Books take off. The company's first book, The End, by Swedish author Mats Stronberg, came out in October 2020. It's described by Publishers Weekly as Nordic Noir meets YA in a part whodunit, part romance, part end-of-the-world narrative. The book received a Kirkus-starred review and was listed as one of their best young adult books of 2020. And this recognition really gave Arctis the push it needed. Now Arctis has the Odin's Child trilogy by Norwegian author Siri Pedersen, which has been an international bestseller and is offering a really interesting, high-quality slate of books from Europe with the possibility of presenting literature from other parts of the world in the future. But first, what do we have to talk about this week? Well, you got your lady badge. <laughs> yes, I did get my lady badge. So that sounds strange. Uh, the lady badge. A little thing. bit sexual or something. It sounds a little know. bit sexual. But basically, I have not seen A Room with a View from the 1980s. And we had talked previously on the show about how I needed to read the book and watch the movie. I'm partway through the book. And the I truth just. Is you're probably never going to finish it. I may point. never finish it. It's that book. I like the idea of it, but reading it's not my jam. But I really wanted to see the movie. So Carrie came over. We decided to watch the movie. When I told my husband that, he's like, you've never seen A Room with a View? And I said, no. And he said, well, I thought all women had watched that. I thought you had to see that in order to have your lady badge. And so that's where the term lady badge comes from, in case anybody wanted to know. Now I have to work on, like, I don't know, maybe I'll use Canva and make you an official lady badge. And I can even get it laminated if you Ooh, like. that would be kind of cool. <laughs> I can pin it to my shirt, the, the scarlet letter. <laughs> what I found really cool about seeing the movie again, I had watched it a ton of times, have long been a lady badge carrier. Um, <laughs> but Rupert Graves plays... Freddie Honeychurch in that movie and he played Lestrade in the Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as Dr. John Watson. I had forgotten that he was in A Room with a View so it was kind of cool. He looks 
you know, he looks so young in A Room with a View because he was well, young. They all look so young. Yeah. I mean, Helen Bonham Carter looks like she's like 14, 14. years old. Yeah. Maybe she is. I don't yeah, know how old she was. Is. I think that might have been the first movie she was in. It, it, it took me down memory lane. Okay, I have to to talk about something. I have been thinking about this a lot. I've been doing lots of things lately that make me wonder what I want to do when I grow up. And now that I'm getting close to 50, it's more like, what do I want to do when I retire? Because already half my life is over. So I guess I am grown up. But when we saw the Cincy book bus, you know, a week or two ago, I thought, oh, this would be so cool. I could do something like this in Louisville. I should find like an old bus or an old truck or something and have it fixed up. And then I could do that because she can set her own hours and you get to meet cool people. I'm probably never going to do that. But I saw an article on Facebook the other day and I saved it because I thought, oh, maybe this is what I can do when I grow up. So it was an article on Book Riot and it said, if you dream of owning a bookstore, here's your chance. And basically it's about this beloved bookstore in this small town in rural New York. It's called Alpin Books in upstate New York and it's hit the market and they're looking for someone to carry on the store and the legacy of it. Basically it's on all this land. It's a bunch of book barns and it's built around this colonial home. And and I'm thinking, how cool would that be? I could turn it into like an Airbnb or a bed and breakfast. You'd have all these like little book barns around. It just sounded really cool. But I can never. Have you talked to Chris about this? He's never going to go for that. But, you know, in my dreams, if if I could move that here, because the thing is, I really like Louisville. I don't really want to move to upstate New York. You know, I'm sure it's lovely. Nothing against upstate New York. I just like where I live currently. But I don't know. It sounds really cool. Maybe what you need to do, I just read an article about the type of, uh, it's not really a scooter, but it's sort of like a, like a small truck. It's called a Piaggio. Is it like one of those tiny little Italian? Yes. I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So they have these, they're these tiny little, it's like a three wheeler. You Uh can get one of those and make it like a tiny, a tiny little book bus. But that's a good idea. Yeah. So that that might be um, yes. a way to make your dream come true, Amy. <laughs> I've been following a lot of bookmobiles, book buses, book bikes on Instagram. <laughs> and the book bikes are pretty cool. They're usually local library services. So you can like pedal them around town and they've got, you know, like an ice cream cooler kind of thing on the back of the bike. But it wouldn't be big enough for a little pop-up bookstore like I'm envisioning. Mm. The thing I liked about the book bus was it was sort of like a scholastic book fair, but for adults. Do you know what I mean? You know that feeling you go to a scholastic book fair? And obviously it wasn't like going to a bookstore because I didn't have all the books that a regular bookstore had. But it had like just really fun, cool books. And it had a few other things too, which is always the stuff you wanted to buy. You wanted to buy the smelly erasers and the... (laughs) And the, like the super long pencils that were like three feet long or what have you. And she has a few things like that, like really cool puzzles. Anyway, I got to think about what I want to do when I um, grow up or die, I guess. Yeah. The end of it. What do I want to do when I die? Before you die. Yeah, so. it's not going to be very helpful at that point, but yeah. All right. Well, very good. I think it's time for us to listen to Heather and hear what she has to say about Arctis books and all the cool things that that they have coming out. So let's talk to Heather. All right. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
So tell us a little bit about you. Sure. I am the sales and marketing director for Arctis Books USA, and we are a fairly new publisher in America. Uh, We're owned by a German company called W1 Media, and we just started publishing here in October of 2020, so we launched right during the pandemic, Um, and we're actually doing a mix of books. We're doing YA titles, but also some middle grade, a few adult books. I have a beautiful illustrated gift book for Christmas this year. So a nonfiction title last year. So we're really doing sort of a a nice range of titles that we're bringing to America. But the idea is to bring the best in translation over here to America, books that haven't made it here for one reason or the other. And are your offices in New York City or where are you located? Um, We do have an office in New York, but since we uh, launched during the pandemic, we're not getting a lot of use. So we're all mostly working from home and remotely. W1, the German company, also owns North-South Books. So we're all sort of together. And there's a scouting agency called West Wind Scouting. So they look for titles to bring back to Germany from here, going in the other direction. So like sort of a symbiotic relationship. Yep. That's great. Yep. It's a neat company. So have you worked in the publishing industry for a long time? I have worked in the publishing industry for a long time. (laughs) It's actually been, oh gosh, um, at least 20 years now. So yeah, I worked in a bookstore after college. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a while. When I was 25, I moved back and I got a job in publishing sales you know, selling books to independent bookstores. And then I worked at Random House Children's Books for a long time. And then about 14 years ago, I started consulting with small publishers. And one of the small publishers that I worked with was North South. And North South in Europe is a much bigger publisher owned by this, you know, larger organization of publishers, W1. So that's actually been really, really fun to get to know them and their publishers. And Artis is obviously like the newest, the newest offshoot of that. Since we're a, a show about reading, we always want to know what our guests' reading lives were like when they were kids and also what their reading lives are like now. So were you a big reader when you were a child and a teenager? I was a huge reader. I was a huge reader. Um, I loved Madeline Langle a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and uh, we still joke about it. I have some friends who also really love her. We joke like whenever we're doing something intellectual and bookish with our families, we call it langling. So so like one winter day, we had like a blizzard, we made a big fire and my daughter was little and she was doing um, like a unit on Langston Hughes. So she stood in front of the fireplace and read Langston Hughes poems to us. And I emailed one of my friends and I was like, oh my gosh, we are totally langling right now. Like this is, I mean, we probably have an intellectual moment like that maybe once every three years. Like it doesn't, it's, you know, our life is really more normal American life than that. But, um, but when it happens, it feels so good. So yeah. I think you've just made a new hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag langling. Yep, yep, it's great. And it's it's interesting to read some of her adult books too. They're interesting to read now too from, you know, now that I'm an adult. What kind of things do you like to read now as an adult or do you get much chance to read for fun since you were working for a publisher and I assume we're reading a lot of the books that you're promoting? Yeah, so it's interesting. Like being in publishing is really the best job for me because I do love to read. I probably read four books a week or more. 
Oh, oh yeah. wow. Well, and I've also been working from home for a long time. So I, you know, before the pandemic, I really worked mostly from home too. So just a big reader. I'm not a big TV watcher. I am a big reader and I'm a fast reader and that mm. helps. That helps too. So yeah, so I probably read like four books a week. I really love history. I read a lot of history books. So I read a lot of books about World War II and I also read a lot of books about Tudor history and mm-hmm. medieval history. Mainly nonfiction? A little bit of both. both. I'll mm-hmm. never say no to a Philippa Gregory book. You know? <laughs> I, can't, I can't, you know, I kind of, like them all like I even like the dry stuff because sometimes you know you read a thrilling historical book and then it's interesting to go back and read something that is you know like real history and be like oh okay well that was a fib (laughs) (laughs) more exciting but yeah there's been so many great historical books out lately like all the books that are out now about like the retellings of the Greek myths, like Circe and A Thousand Ships, I just read, which is like retelling Greek, the Trojan War stories of the women. That was really good. And then the Tudor books are books are just like, there's so many of them. They're kind of crazy. So a lot of Alison Weir. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. Carrie and I just read a book for a book club that's part of the art museum that's near us. They have a book club that ties together usually historical fiction books with some of the art that they have. But anyway, it was some books by an author named Sally Christie. They were historical fiction about the life of King Louis the 15th and his mistresses. But a lot of the details in that, you know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Like some of the things that were in this, you thought couldn't possibly be true. But then when you like look at her website and all the research she did, they, they were, you know, these details were true. So, so sometimes the dry stuff is dry, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, and like knowing all those little details, I feel like it really makes the difference between something seeming dry, like, oh, all these, you know, old dead people to, oh no, that guy was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like she was a prude, but really this lady, you know, did amazing things. So, so yeah, I love history. So Arctis Books, you were saying, is it a relatively new imprint started last October? which is a heck of a year to start something new. So tell us how Arctis came about. You said it's part of the German company and North South Books is as well. Mm -hmm. So why did they decide they needed this new imprint or wanted this new imprint? Well, so they're actually separate companies. And I'm just kind of the common link between the two of them since I'm here in the U.S. So W1 is the parent company and they own both Arctis and North South. And the publisher, the overall publisher owner of W1, he had been thinking about launching another publisher here in the United States, I think for quite some time. So, you know, we went through a bunch of planning meetings and ideas and, you know, I think finally decided to take the leap and everything came together really well. And we had our first sales meeting where we presented the fall titles in early February of 2020. So I think he came over here for that meeting. And then six weeks later, we went into the lockdown. So that was crazy. I mean, as you know, as far as marketing plans and stuff, you know, I'm not an editor, I'm more a sales and marketing person. Last year was just really challenging because everything kept changing. You know, it was like, oh, well, Book Expo is happening. It's not happening. It's going to be virtual. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. Same thing with the American Library Association, which is a big part of our promotion every year. So like just trying to stay on top of all of that was 
kind of a lot. But then the books came out and, you know, the, the flip side of all of the upheaval and trauma of last year was that people were home reading, you know, right. people were reading books more than ever. And it actually, I think, you know, if you read most of like the publishing trade journals, it was actually turned out to be a pretty good year for book publishing. So I think people also got super tired of their screens after a while. I know actually I'm listening to more podcasts now just because I have to rest my eyes. So Right. Yeah, definitely. So has the demand for international books in the U.S. been increasing over the years? I am not sure that it's so much that the demand has been increasing, but I think we're in such a friendly climate for it right now. I mean, I've seen a huge difference in the last 10 to 15 years, just in like really how global we are as far as storytelling and especially the, the kids today, like their ability for their minds to just be open and you know a story doesn't have to be set in a town just like their town like they're very open to reading about kids in Stockholm they're very open to reading about people in other countries and I think not having as much of a of a stumbling block as maybe I would have in my childhood over that different culture because they seem so much more aware of different cultures than we were mm -hmm. 20 years ago. So, so I think that that's a big part of it. It's just like the stories have always been universal, but the details now are more knowable. Mm. I know my son, my 13 year old, he's been mm -hmm. way into manga yep. and all my kids have now gotten into that. But I know when we get in the car, he's, you know, he wants to turn on Spotify. And so most of the time, like we went through this phase where we were listening to Korean music. Mm -hmm. And now the other day, he turned on Russian music, modern Russian music. And so it's really fascinating to me. When I was 13, I would never have even dreamed of listening to music from other countries. Everything's so accessible. And even during you know, again, during this last 17 months or so, um, YouTube, we're all feeling claustrophobic in our house. And you can go to YouTube and search up, like, take me on a beach walk in Sicily, you know? <laughs> and, and there's videos of people with their cameras just, like, walking through the main town. And you can pretend you're there, you know, through TVs. <laughs> you feel like you're there, so. Right. So there are books that are actually tr translations that I think many Americans don't realize are translations. For example, the beloved book Rainbow Fish by Marcus Pfister, which has become a classic to many parents and kids in this country, is originally a German book, I believe. So are there others the, that you can think of? The one that always pops into my head is Taro Gomi's Everyone Poops. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just it's books like that, right? That you don't think. I do think most of the YA and novels, I think it's more obvious that they are translations. So many words and there's so much emphasis, maybe more emphasis on the story than the pictures. But that's the one that always comes to mind as a book that was translated. So what are some differences in the way that authors from other countries write or illustrate that might make it harder for them to maybe sell or appeal to American audiences? Yeah, well, I don't even know if it's so much like a difference in the way they write. How about this? I don't speak German or mm. any other language other than English, which is horrible, but I don't. So I don't get to read things in the original language, but I will say that sometimes humor really doesn't mm. translate. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we'll get books that in another language are hysterically funny. And in America, they maybe they read as mean or unpleasant. That's a big difference. I think there are some places where America is a leader as far as social issues. And there's some things where we lag behind, you know, mm-hmm. and that's also something to consider, you know, if we read something and it seems, you know, outdated as far as like prejudices or things that we've come to terms with that we've realized are problems that maybe in other countries they don't see as a problem yet. So how do you go about determining or, or how does the company go about determining what books they end up translating and publishing then? You know, it's a, the whole publishing process, like now having been part of it for a really long time, it is just really mysterious, you know, and, and there's no, <laughs> there is no set formula. And, you know, people will come up to me and they'll be like, well, you know, people, you can get this published. I'm like, if I knew people and I could get it published, I'd have published 25 books by now myself. Mm-hmm. It's such a fluid industry. And so it's like what you're looking for today is going to be totally different in a couple of months when, you know, when we've moved along with everything, you know, like the, what the country's looking for, what readers are looking for, what people, you know, think is good, um, what schools are saying they need, that kind of thing. It keeps changing. So it's not so much like, oh, this is funny and it's, it would be hard to translate. Rhyme is always hard to translate. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's kind of a big one where you could just look at it and say like, oh, well, we could try, but it's going to be hard. Great international reviews um, mm. really make a huge difference. We just published Siri Pedersen's Odin's Child. Which I actually picked up from my local library a couple days ago. It was sitting on the new releases shelf. But that that book is an international sensation. And it shows. Like, it, you know, it shows in the reviews. I mean, we published it here. And my gosh, what a warm reception. You know, Publishers Weekly compared it. They said, for fans of Pullman and Bardugo, which, oh, wow. you know, like when, if that comes into your, your email, you fall off your chair. I mean, that's, that's awesome. a huge, amazing, great review. So it was so nice. But, you know, those are really great quality books. And translating from Norwegian, a 600-page book is not easy, but we work with some really good translators. There's also the agents in the foreign countries do a tremendous job often they'll commission like a reader's report that they'll send out to publishers. So, you know, you'll sort of get like maybe a couple of chapters pre-translated with a synopsis in your language. But Odin's Child, that series is is in, I think, 15 different languages already. So yeah, I guess that would be a bummer for a translator to have translated a whole book and then send it off and then the publisher might not be interested. Mm -hmm. That would be terrible. So I hadn't thought about it, but I guess it makes sense that you would just send off a little bit of it translated. Yeah, but but it does happen, though, where I think they have a whole translation and things don't happen with it. Translators are great. I mean, there's also a lot of translators that will get out there on behalf of the books and reach out to their publishing contacts, too, because they fall in love with the books when they're translating. So is it the type of thing where the author finds a translator or their original publisher finds a translator or you all find a translator? It can really vary. It could go a couple of different ways. You could be the original publisher, right? And you have the rights to this book in different languages and you want to sell them. So you then commission the reader's report and the translation and your subsidiary rights people go out and sell it or 
maybe you have a savvy agent who retained the rights in other languages mm. <laughs> and mm. she's handling it. Usually not so much the author themselves. It's usually, okay. you know, an agent or a publisher handling it, or you are an aggressive publisher looking for things in other languages and you go to a trade show and maybe you see a book with a striking cover and you talk to someone and say, Oh, what's that? And there is no reader's report or translation. And then at that point, maybe you would get involved and ask, you know, if it was something you really wanted. I don't think there are a lot of publishers aggressively, aggressively pursuing translation like that, but it can can happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is it difficult for European and Asian writers to enter the U.S. market? I know many Americans think, well, J.K. Rowling, Neil Gaiman, Leanne Moriarty, she's Australian, Jane Harper, she is too, but they're British and Australian, you know, they speak English. So is it easier for them to get published in in America than writers on the continent or on other continents? I think so. I think so. I can't back it up with any figures. But I do think the whole translation thing is just a, it's another hurdle to overcome. I think the biggest hurdle, though, to be completely honest, is just that America is a huge country full of authors. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be a big xenophobe and say like, oh, we don't ever need to look outside of America for a new book. But there's so many books here that really are truly great that are deserving of being published. And I think it just kind of puts the squeeze on what gets brought in from other countries. You know, it's we're Mm -hmm. not as aggressively looking as maybe some other countries are to fill a void because, you know, maybe some other smaller countries don't have so many publishers or so many huge publishers or so many actual humans just to write all these books. (laughs) (laughs) Working with, you know, North South, who is a Swiss company in Switzerland, like we are a huge country. Switzerland is the size of New Jersey, you know, like we're huge, full of people, tons of people. So you mentioned like with translation that there's different ways in which that's handled, but as part of the process of getting a book published that is from another country, what does that process look like? And, you know, we talked about obviously the words, right? You know, I don't speak German, so Mm -hmm. the words would have to be changed, but are there other changes that have to be made to a book before it's launched in, in the U.S.? Yeah, and everything's so weird right now because of the pandemic but in before times we go back (laughs) we go back to regular times there was the frankfurt book fair in the fall and a lot of publishers from all over the world would go to frankfurt and everybody has a stand just like actually they have really nice stands and they have food and drink in their stands it's wonderful it's really it's really neat yeah it's really like you sit down and they're like they're like would you like a glass of wine or perhaps some macaroni. And you're like, what? Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, ma- macaroni. Yeah. So, um, or cappuccino. Like there's cappuccino everywhere. It's so great. Really good coffee. So anyway, so you go to the international fair and everybody has these beautiful stands with their books displayed. And it's mostly rights people selling rights. Like they're mostly rights fairs and selling rights is like a, a huge part of the publishing business and especially the international publishing business. So you would go to these international fairs, you shop around the fair, you, you know, if you're looking to buy, you come back with all sorts of interesting projects and then you follow up on them. And 
part of the stumbling block is the translation, right? You request a translation, you request materials. If the translation doesn't exist, that might take a couple of months. And what you get might only be a rough translation. It might not be, you know, your final translation. And then you have to do the contract for the book. And that actually takes a really long time. You think it would just be like, oh, here's my contract, sign it. But the contract negotiations can take a really long time. So, you know, so then you're into that. Then you've found this wonderful book. You've gotten some kind of preliminary translation. You've signed the contract. Files are exchanged. (laughs) And then it comes to an American editor who might be able to work with that translation or they might need to send it back out to get a little more work done on it before they can really edit it. And then if you have a really good translation, I mean, hopefully it doesn't need a ton of editing, but it might, you know, and you might need someone to go through it to maybe slightly Americanize things. I'm trying to think of what some good examples of that would be. Oh gosh, I saw something the other day. It was a flower that is a lupine and there's another word for that too. You know, so it's like, it might be a word that's like fine in English, but there's a better word for it in English, you know, Uh you would want to use. So there's that. And then the covers usually change. Not always. We have sort of a slight variation on the original cover for Odin's Child. The original cover for Odin's Child, the Norwegian cover, shows the bloody stump. (laughs) (laughs) Like right back on on the front of the book cover. And then for the German edition, they move the bloody stump to the flap. So you see the tail on the book, and then when you when you open it up, you see the bloody stump. We opted for bloody stump inside because Americans are queasy and which is really so ironic, isn't it? That you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying this sarcastically that we are so adverse to violence. Yeah, you know. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, like we, you know, we only eat boneless chicken, like right. Much less uh, to see like a joint. Yeah, but I bought my boneless chicken carrying my rifle yeah. into Kroger <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Well, you know, it's it's yeah. right. Yeah, so exactly. So so the cover might change. You know, and I think at that point, then you're kind of just into like back into the regular publishing process of, of everything. But those are those are sort of the hurdles that you have to go through. You know, some some of the other hurdles are sometimes you know we want to make changes here in America that people in other countries don't like. You know, like Siri Patterson, who's the author of Odin's Child, is incredibly wonderful to work with. One of the nicest people I've met in ever. But, you know, like it would be totally within her right as an author to say, no, <laughs> that original cover must stay as is. You know, I feel mm. strongly about it. And that happens. Like, you know, it totally happens. And then maybe you go back and forth and, you know, come to a compromise or maybe you don't. Maybe you just do it the way they want it to be, you know? So I have a a couple questions about what what you were saying. So when you said that sometimes the editor in the United States will have to send it back for clarification or for changes, is the editor sending it back to the editor in Europe or is the editor sending it back to the author for changes? The editor here would usually work with the translator and probably the author. You know, assuming the author's English, the author is fluent. I mean, again, that's that's so embarrassing as Americans. Like, usually we're not fluent in other languages, you know. So I'm assuming that most of the time, and not every time, like there are certainly editors who speak German and Norwegian and all that, and French and Mm -hmm. Spanish and other languages. 
but I think most of the time they do have to go back to the translator and they might need the translator to act as sort of a go-between with, with the author. I use a program called Deeple a lot. If I'm emailing with people in another language, mostly they'll email me in English, which is really nice of them, but sometimes I'll send them an email in their own language. I'm lucky I have a German coworker. So every once in a while I'll ask her and be like, can you just look at that? Like the translator says it's right. Will you just confirm I'm not asking for anything like outrageous <laughs> here that you know, misread my intention. So So I have to say that I have read the advanced reader copy version of Memento Monstrum and I loved it so much. And we've talked a little bit about Odin's Child. It's from Norway and uh, Memento Monstrum is from an author from Germany. What other books do you have coming out? Yeah. So Memento Monstrum is really cute. It's middle grade. I mean, it's the first middle grade book we've done. And it's Jochen Till is the author and Wiebke Rowers is the illustrator. And it's a really fun book. It's a little bit Halloween-y, a little spooky. And it's color throughout. So even though it's a novel, like the text is in color and then it has illustrations throughout. So that's, that's really fun. We also have another illustrated book that is for adults and it's called All the Colors of Life. And that's actually translated from Norwegian. And it's Lisa Isato, who is Norway's most popular artist, illustrator. And the book is called All the Colors of Life. And it sort of takes you from birth to the end of life. And it's all of those experiences that you have along the way, being a child and the change of the seasons and loving summertime to being a teenager and the excitement of having your first cup of coffee and feeling like someone treated you like an adult to falling in love, to getting older, getting married, having children, watching those children grow up and becoming grandparents and, you know, then kind of losing the ones you love. And it's just, it's like a really beautiful meditation on life with these incredible images. Also interesting to me because Lisa Aksato, she's Norwegian and she's of Gambian descent. So she's a woman of color, which I think is interesting just because I know a lot of people, when they think of the Scandinavian countries, they think everyone is tall and blonde, you know? Mm. Um, and she's actually like this beautiful woman of color. So that's that's a pretty neat book, I think. And then we've also been doing books that are really, I like them because I'm into historical fiction, as you know, but <laughs> Tillman Rorig, uh, we did a book from him called Eric the Red, and we have a new Robin Hood book coming out from him. And they're novels, they're historical fiction novels, but they're really meaty. They're very, very meaty. And, um, <laughs> Are they YA or they're more YA. for adults? They're YA. They're like 500 pages, and he does oh. like meticulous historical research, which is great. He's a lovely guy. There's an interview with him on our blog on the website, www.arctistbooks.com, if you want to visit. And then last year in fall 20, we did a book called The End, which was from Matt Strandberg. And that was a Kirkus YA book of the year. I don't want to not mention that one just because it came out last year, because that was a favorite. And that's set in Stockholm. It, a comet is coming towards the world. And so everyone knows we're all going to die. And it's a mystery. The main character's girlfriend has disappeared. So he knows he only has a certain amount of time to find out what happened to her. But that was great. you know. And that was a nice warm welcome from Kirkus. Oh, and then the one book I didn't mention is actually our lead title for fall, which is the sequel to Odin's Child, The Rot. 
is also coming out. Oh, because so, oh, how many books are in that series? Three, three. Okay. So it's the Odin's Child, the Rot, and then the Might will shortly follow in spring 2022. So yeah. It sounds like you all have a great slate of books that you've come out with. Like I said, I really enjoyed Memento Monstrum. And in fact, I talked about it in the episode that we aired this past week. Oh, So a lot of these books, obviously, you know, you say the owner is in Germany and many of these books are from Scandinavia or Germany. So is Northern Europe going to be the focus of Arctis or will you expand (laughs) to other places, do you think? I think so, but I don't know. I think so. Uh, We have a nice relationship. and And I think that's another part of it, too, is, you know, relationships like you meet publishers and agents who are easy to work with, right? And they start to know what you need and you start to understand maybe what their contracts are like and it makes business. People, nobody likes to think about the business side of publishing, but it makes the business side easier when you understand what they're asking for and they understand what you're asking for and you're not starting from scratch with a new contract every time because there's a lot of little things in the contracts that I think can become stumbling blocks to publication. Is that anywhere or is that especially like for non I think it's European I think it's anywhere countries. but I mean I my, you know again I've been working with the translated books for the last like almost 15 years so I really see it on this end but but it also could be you know and I'm extrapolating because I am not the person who handles the contracts but it could also just be a little bit of frustration right after you have a back and forth like people aren't understanding each other Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get to a point where you say, okay, well, like this is either going to happen or we're just going to move on. And I do wonder how much of it has to do with language barriers. I mean, I think people in other countries are so much better with multiple languages than we are, but it's still really hard. You know, it's still, mm-hmm. it's still not easy and the misunderstandings happen. I want to know, what does a day in your life look like in terms of what you do for Arctis Book in your position? So I'm more on the sales and marketing side. Arctis is distributed by Simon & Schuster. So if you're a bookstore, and they should be in all bookstores, which is nice being distributed by Simon & Schuster because they have a good reach everywhere. So I'm the primary contact between the publisher and Simon & Schuster. So a lot of what I do is the nuts and bolts of making sure that all the title information is uploaded so that it flows out to the world. That's what gets the books on all the online websites. Then on the marketing side, sort of the nuts and bolts of it is getting those advanced reading copies out there onto things like NetGalley and Edelweiss so that people can actually read them and we can get advanced reviews, submitting them to the publications like Publishers Weekly, The New York Times, Kirkus, School Library Journal, Regular Library Journal, FOIA, and then looking for, you know, like for Odin's Child, looking for magazines that would specifically be interested in fantasy books or science fiction books. In a normal year before times, my job would have really revolved around Book Expo and the American Library Association shows in the spring and like making big plans to be there and exhibit books in people's hands, which I miss doing so much because all this virtual stuff is great. Thank goodness we have it, but it is just not as good as seeing and talking to people in person. So has it been fun starting from scratch with a new imprint like this? I mean, I'm sure it has been challenging (laughs) in some ways to try to break into a market. 
but but the thing is is like i don't know if fun's the right word but it's it's been really rewarding and i have to say like it's given me a ton of gratitude working like through the pandemic and i've always really loved book publishing and i've always really loved it as an industry like i feel like i've gotten to work with great people and i get to work with books you know i had a friend who worked for a cell phone company she would go to meetings and they talk about cell phones for two hours or four hours. I'd be like, oh, I can't even imagine, you know, but to go and sit in a room and talk about books for four hours, that's delightful. Like that's, <laughs> me, that's great. So to have this during the pandemic has really been nice. And specifically what made me so happy was honestly that Kirkus best book for the end, Yeah, because, you know, again, it's like brand new publisher starting out during the pandemic. Like it, it was just a really nice, warm welcome. You know, it made me feel like, like, even though things that were so tragic last year, people saw us, you know, people read the book, people liked it. And that's great. And then in the spring, we had Odin's Child, which has been successful, like really successful. I mean, it's selling every week. Um, It's doing really well. The reviews were great. You know, so again, more of that. So even though it was hard launching during the pandemic, it was really, really, really rewarding and I'm I am just really dying to get back out with the books in person and find everyone that I missed digitally and get given yeah. to them you know well thank you so much for talking to us about Arctis I'm I'm really excited to see what else you all put out and it was a pleasure reading Memento Monstrum and I just really like what you all do I just I like the idea of exchanging books and ideas with with other countries. And I like seeing what other countries produce that we don't normally see. Yeah. So I think that's awesome. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Heather Lennon and with Carrie. Carrie, what's going on over there? What are you reading? I've been going through a lot of audiobooks. I have been strategically looking for books that are eight hours or less because I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble and like, you know, 17 hours worth of listening by just picking without really paying attention. So I've been more strategic and I recently finished the audiobook. It's by Amy Stewart and it's called Wicked Plants, The Weed That Killed Lincoln's Mother and Other Botanical Atrocities. (laughs) So here's the thing about this book. I really enjoyed the book, but I think I would have enjoyed it more had I had the actual book because it's talking about all of these different plants that can kill you or that can cause you to, you know, if you ingest them, they'll make you really sick or if they touch your skin, they'll give you a rash or, you know, whatever. And so as I was listening to it, it was really fascinating, but it would have been even better had I had the book, you know, maybe even listen to the book while I'm flipping through the book. Because for me, I like to garden. And so some plants I'm familiar with, but the author talked about plants that are in, you know, Australia or, you know, lots of other places. And I had no idea what these plants looked like. So I was just curious. So that was the downside of listening to the audiobook. Even though I like to garden and this year I started growing some vegetables, I learned some things about plants that are in my yard. Like, for example, you may have heard about the nightshade family. 
Mm -hmm. of plants. Certain ones are poisonous. Well, a lot of those in that family we eat like eggplant and Mm. tomatoes. (laughs) I learned that if you eat too much corn, like say you were someplace and you didn't have access to other foods, but there was a lot of corn. If you started eating that and that was all you were eating, it would cause you to develop a disease called pellagra. I did not know that. Now, if, you know, if I eat corn for dinner every night, as long as I'm eating other things, it's not going to harm me, but it causes a deficiency. So I learned like a ton of stuff about plants that I eat (laughs) on the regular that could kill me if I wasn't careful or if I stopped eating them in moderation. So, you know, I think if you're a person who's interested in plants, who likes to garden, I think this book would be really fascinating for you. And I think I had heard or read at some point about Lincoln's mother. She died from drinking milk but the cows had been eating snake root, white Mm. snake root. And so what happens is the toxin builds up in their milk. And then when people would milk the cows and drink their milk, it would poison them. So would you say this is a book that's sort of in the same vein as a Mary Roach book? Yes, similar. Mm. Now, the thing is, Mary Roach is funny. She has like this weird sense of humor that I think comes through in her writing. And this wasn't the situation where the author narrated. It was somebody else. So it's possible that maybe, you know, just in the delivery, if there was humor. So it's a little bit different. It's more of a like facts. But like I said, I enjoyed it just that was you wish one you of could the see the pictures. I wish I could see the pictures. Yeah. So okay. she does have another book that's in a similar vein called Wicked Bugs. And I had put that as something I want it to listen to, but I think I'm going to switch that and, you know, either get it as an ebook or see if they have the actual book at our library. So she is also the author of the series Girl with Gun that I think I've talked about on the show yeah. before. And there's several books in that series that's sort of a historical mystery. Uh, but it's funny that she's writing two totally different kinds of books. Yeah. Well, Heather, what have you been reading? Anything good? I just read a book called The Witch's Heart. I'm not sure if I'll say her name right. It's uh, Genevieve Gornichek. And it is, like Odin's Child, it's a Norse mythology take. But it is about a witch from Norse mythology who falls in love with Loki and has his children. I don't want to say she's a minor character in Norse mythology, but the author took her story and blew it up into an entire book that's really good and compelling and builds towards Ragnarok, which I don't oh. know if you're into Norse mythology, that's the end of the world. It was a good book. Like, um, It's a little literary. It's kind of my favorite kind of book. It's, it's like a literary book that's not so literary that it makes you want to stick a stick in your eye like it's you know it's like I felt kind of highbrow reading it but like it's not really a challenging book at all I like books where when I'm reading them I don't know everything in it and I have to look stuff up a little bit so there's a lot of Norse mythology I guess I could have just read the book and just seen what happened but I definitely did a lot of cheating and you know she'd mention it character's name and I'd be like I better google this person to see what horrible thing is going to happen to them um (laughs) cheat a little bit I gotta go to their wikipedia entry and see (laughs) I think it's as good as Cersei Mm because I really I really like that too and I feel like I've just read a lot of 
I don't know. I th- I think something with the pandemic, reading is my anxiety therapy. So reading about other worlds and history and not right now has really been my go-to for the last year and a half. That one sounds good. Mm-hmm. It just occurred to me, do you think that the interest in the Marvel movies and Loki and Thor and all that, I know they've been around for a while, but do you think that has anything to do with some of the, like, Americans' fascination with that mythology? Yeah, absolutely. I did, And I think we've always loved an escape, right? We've, we've mm-hmm. always loved an escape, but now, now we love it even more. <laughs> well, Amy, what have you had going on over there? You text me pictures of books you've picked up. I never know what you're reading. (laughs) When we are taping this, the Tokyo Olympics just started. And so I decided to read a book called Sweet Bean Paste by Durian Sukigawa. Mm. And this was originally published in Japan in 2013. And it was translated into English in 2017. And I decided to read this for a few reasons. One, because of the Tokyo Olympics. And so I thought it would be kind of fun to read something Japanese. Secondly, Melanie Moore, the owner of the Cincy Book Bus, who was a guest several seasons ago recommended it on her page and so when you and I Carrie went on our little jaunt to Cincinnati several weeks ago and we caught up with the Cincy book bus I decided to buy a copy of the book so let me first say that this book is not at all what I was expecting I was expecting at this feel-good story that centered around baking I like to bake and so I'm always drawn to a story that has that as an element in it and you add an international vibe to it and I'm there for it And those elements are there, but there's also a lot more to this book. So the story is about a man named Sintaro, and he runs this small food stall in Tokyo. And Sintaro has a bit of an alcohol problem. He wants to be a writer, but he's stuck running this food stall to pay off a debt to a man who bailed him out of a bad situation. And this food stall makes a Japanese dessert called dorayaki. And dorayaki is made of two pancakes with a sweet bean paste filling in the middle. And Sintaro runs this food stall, but he doesn't really have a passion for it. He doesn't take a lot of pride in his work. And so he buys the bean paste in these big, large cans, and it tastes average at best. So one day, an old lady named Toku asks for a job, and he says he can't pay her very much. And she says that that's okay. She'll basically work for free. And he still turns her down. She thinks that she's too old, and her hands are sort of disfigured, and he doesn't want customers to see her hands. But she's persistent and she comes several times. And finally, she leaves with him a container of bean paste that she has made herself. And when he tries some, he is blown away by how good it is. It's so much better than the product that he buys in those big industrial cans. So he decides to hire her in hopes that she will teach him how to make bean paste. I don't know if you've ever had any Asian desserts that contain bean paste, but reminds me of a slightly more savory version of like a lemon curd or a jam, and it's made with beans instead of fruit. And I've had it like in little mochi balls or dumplings that you can get like at Asian grocery stores. I know I got some when I was in in Seattle. Well, Toku spends much time with Centaro showing him how to make the bean paste, and their business improves dramatically. And even though Centaro wants her to stay hidden, Toku likes to talk with the schoolgirls who come to the stall after school, and she especially bonds with one in particular named Wakana. And so one day the owner of the stall comes by and says that she has received a complaint that a sick old woman is making the dorayaki. So she tells Centaro that he has to fire Toku that she's bad for business. So this is the beginning of a multi-generational story 
Yes, there was baking in there, and I loved all the descriptions of the confections and the food in this book, but Toku and Sentaro both have secrets, and Toku, after a long and difficult life, wants to pass along her wisdom about life and confections to help Sentaro be happy. And I don't want to say too much about the rest of the story because I don't want to give anything away, but really this story is a sort of a philosophical question. And at the end of the book, the author, Sukigawa, says he wrote this book to explore this question or this notion that a person's usefulness to society isn't a way to measure their value. And in some ways, it seems like a very anti-Japanese sentiment because, you know, the things we see in media about how Japanese citizens never take vacations, they work crazy long hours, they're so stressed out so that they can be productive members of society. But the author's viewpoint is, and this is a quote, that the ill, the bedridden, and children whose lives are over before they've barely begun all are equal in their relationship to the universe. Anyone is capable of making a positive contribution to the world. This book won a well-known literary award in France, which is uh, an award that I cannot pronounce, and it's a very long name, so I'm not going to attempt it. <laughs> but I would recommend it for a short read. It's just a little under 300 pages that's thought-provoking, takes you to another place, and introduces you to a culture you may not be familiar with. I may have to borrow it. You, I will send it your way. Delicious. <laughs> All right, we are going to take another short break, and when we come back... Heather's going to answer her three about me. We are back with Heather Lennon from Arctis Books. Number one, (laughs) you attend book fairs as part of your professional life, or at least you did in the before times. So you may feel a little differently about them than say Amy or I would. What are your top tips for spending a day or several days at a book fair? Wear comfortable shoes. I went to the Bologna book fair, which is like you know mostly focused on children's books a couple of years ago, and I wanted to be chic. So I wore <laughs> like this stupid pair of boots with heels, and oh my gosh, I lamed myself, literally <laughs> lamed myself wearing them. It was really dumb just dumb nobody's nobody's looking at your feet nobody cares (laughs) wear comfy shoes that is literally the number the number one thing because it also if you hurt yourself the first day it'll ruin the rest of your experience so you really did lame yourself i really hurt myself okay and i think even to this day i might have like done some damage to my feet there so that's a really big fair they have like five different halls that you walk through so I don't know if you guys have ever been able to come up for book expo or one of the ALAs it's just like take that and then multiply it times five and it's it's just a lot and all the countries in the whole world are there and that is really cool to see so then I guess that would be my second thing is if you're ever able to go to an international book fair definitely get out of the American hall and go see all the other countries because it's just so neat to see all the books coming from other countries i mean i know having been in book publishing for a long time you know you hear different things like oh publishing is dead print is dead blah blah blah, all these doom and gloom things and then you get out there and you see all these publishers publishing their little hearts out (laughs) nobody's going anywhere we're fine we are fine but i really think wearing comfortable shoes that should be a life lesson for everybody about everything yep So we've talked about speaking different languages, you're in international publishing. So what is the top language that you wish you spoke or read besides English 
I really wish I spoke German just because I've been working with, you know, German publisher for 14 years now, but North South is based in Switzerland. And when I started the publisher at that point was Swiss and they speak Swiss German, which is also called Deutsch. It's a different dialect. And he said, don't bother because nobody speaks Deutsch, and it'll be a waste of your time. But now 14 years later, you know, I work with a lot of German people and it would just be nice. Like my goal has always been to just speak enough German that I could get in a cab and give them the street address and end up at the right place. But I, I, it's hard to learn a new language as an adult. Really, really hard. You open your mouth and embarrassment comes out. So, <laughs> normal, so. so when, when you went in the before times, mm-hmm. I mean, I know a lot of them speak English, but did you use like Google Translate or one of those programs? Everybody speaks English, which is so nice, but, you know, embarrassing for you. But then like if I had to take a cab somewhere, I would just write where I needed to go on a little piece of paper and hand it mm. to the cab driver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they don't go. Grazie, danke, you know. I'm showing my American ignorance, but I didn't know that they spoke German in Switzerland. For some reason, I was thinking they spoke French. There's like three different parts of Switzerland. There's different languages in Switzerland. It's, again, it's the size of New Jersey, but it's an interesting little country with a lot going on. So hmm. Italian. In some spots, they speak okay. Italian. So okay. Ticino. So from what we've read about you and what you talked about, you've traveled a lot through Europe. So what is your favorite thing to eat or a place you like to visit when you've gone to Switzerland? So I was really lucky a couple of years ago. I went with my entire family, which is not that huge. It's just me and my husband and my daughter. Went over to Switzerland as a family and we traveled for 10 days, which was great. And we took her out of school and we had this great trip. And we went to Lucerne, which is absolutely beautiful place. Highly recommend it. And then we went up into the Alps, which are really storybook magical. Hmm. So we stayed in a town called Engen, which was gorgeous and there's another town called Mirren which is also gorgeous and there are like these little towns that hang on the side of a cliff and they look out at each other and there's a big valley in in the middle and it's gorgeous and then down in the valley is another town called Lauterbrunnen and that is they say what the Lord of the Rings Rivendell is based on oh wow there's there's a walk where like as you go along the walk there's like 17 waterfalls you know, coming down from like these towering mountains and you're down on the bottom of them and it's pretty amazing. So yeah, so that was an amazing trip. (sighs) It gives me travel envy. I know, I know. I'm ready for things to get back to normal, but yeah, uh, me too. But I don't know, we'll see what the new normal is. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, Heather, it has been so great talking with you. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. It's been fun. Oh, it's really fun. You guys are a delight. I really <laughs> enjoyed this. So, You can learn more about Arctis Books and their catalog at arctis-books.com or on Instagram at arctisbooksusa. 
Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at The Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.